Words are dangerous things. We can do great good with our words, but equally we can do great evil. I don't have to ask you how you feel when somebody uses their words to say one thing and then goes and acts and does something different. We all hate when that happens. We find it frustrating. We find well, there's something in us that just says, hey, that's wrong. And we don't have to look far for examples of this. Just the other day after the inauguration, Joe Biden, the new U.S. president, made a decree where he said, hey, everybody, if you're on federal property, you have to wear a mask at all times. A few hours later, the media had a field day when they took a picture of him walking on federal property without a face mask on. Words are dangerous things. Words are also confusing things. One word can have multiple meanings. And sometimes we can think that we're stating something clearly to our hearer, and yet our hearer hears something else. As somebody who is a foreigner living here in the United Kingdom, I experience this, unfortunately, quite often. Now, it is humorous sometimes. The word in particular that has caused many giggles is the word pants. Now, for you, some of you, you're already giggling because I said the word pants in a sermon. But for me, it means trousers. It doesn't mean underwear. And so there's been several times I've, I've said that word, like, hey, I, I've got to go change my pants. I just spilled something on them. And then everybody starts laughing. Sometimes the misunderstanding when it comes or the confusion when it comes to words isn't humorous. It can actually be really frustrating. It can even be dangerous. Words are confusing. The importance of words is a theme that we find throughout the book of James in the Bible, which is the book that we're studying at the moment. And throughout its five chapters, we see this thread. It's cautioning and encouraging us to choose our words wisely. Why is there such a strong emphasis on words? Well, it's because words are important. It's because words have power and it's because words shouldn't be empty, even though often they are. One of the problems that humans have struggled with ever since humans have struggled is that we like to talk the talk. And then when we turn around, we struggle to walk the walk. What we say and what we do don't, aren't always lined up. And when people see this, when we see this in others, we're frustrated, we're put off. We even find it offensive, as we've already said. As we look at the book of James, we see some frustration coming out about this particular problem. And so I'm going to invite you right now, if you haven't already turned there, to turn with me to James chapter 2 and, and read with me. So James chapter 2, it's right towards the end of the New Testament. And we're going to be starting in verse 14 and reading, and we'll just start with the first three verses. So verse 14 through 17. This is what it says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now you may have noticed that James really isn't holding back here. These verses almost feel like he's taking us by the scruff of the neck and saying, Hey, Christian, listen, let's be careful here. Why is there such passion? Why is there almost a sense of angst about what James is saying? Well, James is being inspired by God to write this particular letter. 
We know that this letter ends up in the Bible and God is helping him to write this. And I believe that this isn't James's passion. This is actually God's passion. God is passionate about his name and that not being defamed. You see, when a person claims to be a Christian, a Christ follower, but then doesn't live like a Christ follower, damage is done to the name of Christ and to his church. A Christian is, excuse me, a Christian is a person who is supposed to be someone who has received an immense gift of love. That all their sins have been forgiven. They've been cleansed from everything that they've done that is wrong and offensive to God. Everything they've thought and said and done. By definition, that's what a Christian is. But by definition, a Christian is also somebody who is ready to give of that same love to those around them. The word stewardship, as I think about this, springs to mind. If you look it up in a dictionary, it says stewardship is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Christians are to be stewards of God's amazing love. But when a person claims Christ and yet does not give love, something's just wrong. In fact, it's so wrong that the word used here in verse 17 to describe this wrongness is the word dead. This word shows up just three times in the book of James and they're all in this passage. Once in verse 17, twice in verse 26. And it's the same word in the original language that the word used to describe a corpse. If we claim to be a Christ follower and yet practically do not prove that by works of love, our faith is like a corpse. It's dead. It's lifeless. Our faith and our works cannot be divorced from each other. Otherwise, it actually isn't even faith. Just because someone claims to be a Christ follower, to be a Christian, doesn't mean that they actually are. I say this especially for those of you who may be exploring faith. I'm hopeful that some people joining us today may not be sure about what they believe about God, about Christianity and and the Christian life. And if that's you, I imagine that in your life and in your experience, you've come across certain people who have claimed to have faith, claimed to be Christians, claimed to know God, and yet their lives and their actions seem to contradict those claims. If you've experienced this, I just want to say sorry. This happens way more than it should. And I don't say sorry just on behalf of the church, although I do do that. I I say sorry on behalf of myself. Because there have definitely been times where I have said one thing, I have claimed one thing, and turned away and not walked in that. Our words and our actions must align. And this is emphasized as we continue to read on. Look at verse 18 with me. James 2.18 says, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What we see here is James is calling people out for trying to kind of slip and slide out of the responsibility of, of proving their faith by the way that they live. People want to sometimes claim that they, their, you know, works just isn't their gift. But God clarifies right here that faith and works belong together and are necessary for every believer. Our faith must be practiced. It must be exercised. It must be proved. 
If our faith is merely a mental nod or some sort of profession of our mouth, that's not enough. It must be shown in our behaviour. I stated earlier that words aren't just dangerous things, they're also confusing things. And there's a perfect example of that that's beginning to form as we come into the next section of the text. Using God's word here, I am quite strongly saying to you that faith must be proved by action. The scripture goes on and talks, if you, if you were to read through the next portion, about Abraham, one of the people from the Old Testament, who is an example of faith. And then in verse 24, it says something quite clear, but quite perplexing. Read it with me, verse 24. It says this, You see, after using Abraham as an example, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you have any experience with the Bible or with the Christian faith, this verse may in particular cause you to pause. And it should. It should make you say, wait, 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 hold on. What, what did you just say? And if you look into that text, it says a person is justified. That word justified means made right with God. A person is made right with God by works and not by faith alone? Doesn't God say the exact opposite thing through the Apostle Paul earlier on in the Bible? I mean, if you go into Romans chapter 3, verse 28, I won't turn there right now, but I will read it for you. It says, for we hold, as in we believe, we, we grasp onto that one is justified, there's the same word, by faith apart from works of the law. Uh, Paul also in Ephesians 2 maybe says it a bit more fully when he says, For by grace you have been saved. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now what's going on here? Because these, these seem to be against each other. Are we witnessing here some sort of ancient battle between two leaders of the early church? Or is God just contradicting himself in his word? Now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Paul and James are speaking to two different but related things. Paul is speaking to how you were made right with God. James is speaking to how you demonstrate you were made right with God. Now, it sounds like a subtle difference, but there's actually a lot in that. Let me use an illustration to maybe help, help with this. I'm a resident of the United Kingdom. I'm not a citizen here. I am a resident. And, and there's a difference between how I got here and how I prove that I'm here. So if you ask me, how are you in the United Kingdom? How do you live here? Well, the answer would be, hey, there's this church and they sponsored me to get a visa. It's a tier two religious workers visa, blah, 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 blah. That would be the answer that I would give you. And that would be true. That would be accurate and right. But if you asked me, how do you prove that you are a resident or allowed to be a resident in the United Kingdom? What I would probably do is go and grab this guy here. 
This is my residence permit. This is the thing that demonstrates, it shows that I'm allowed, it proves that I'm allowed to be here. A Christian is not saved by their works. A Christian is saved for works. There's a huge difference between those two things. And anybody who argues or tries to argue otherwise is trying to avoid the truth. And their faith, as described in, in this chapter, is dead. In fact, let's read the last verse where that word dead comes, comes up again. Verse 26. If you drum, jump all the way to the end of the chapter, it says, For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. I have a friend who once preached a message kind of similar to this. And if you've been there listening with me that day when he preached that message, you would have described him as a gifted and passionate person. I heard this friend give multiple messages over the years. But there's one, this one in particular, sticks out in my mind. It struck a chord. And even though it's been a number of years ago since that happened, I can remember even the title of that message. I can remember what it was about. It was about how we as Christians are filled with God's love and we need to go into the world and show people and with our actions and with our words, we need to declare to people that there is a God. It was a really good message. It was a really timely message and one that I needed to hear. Today, that friend is in prison. After being caught, tried and convicted, for embezzling a large amount of money. Embezzling means to steal from someone who trusts you. And this is the part where you may think, well, that's really terrible. Um, I would never do that. I'm glad I'm not that guy. And if these are thoughts that are coming to your mind now, please don't do that. Please don't think that somehow you're superior to my friend. You see, the same brokenness in this story lurks in all of us. And I find this story absolutely gutting. I hesitated to even relay it to you today. But I share it with you because we're in the same danger. There are two layers of application to this story. The first layer is that we must practice what we preach. Otherwise, there are consequences and sometimes even horrible consequences. In this instance, it's had implication for my family, for, not my family, my friend's family, for his ministry and even for the church at large. But the second layer that maybe is the deeper layer of application and the one that I really want you to hear is that for any of us who claim to be Christians, when our proclamation and then our actions don't align, what is happening in that moment is we are in effect embezzling the love of God. We are taking something that has been entrusted to us, God's great love, and we're misappropriating it. We're not using it as it's meant to be used. When we see a need, 
when we see an opportunity and we and 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 that opportunity is to share the love of God, but we turn a blind eye to it, we embezzle God's love. And that grieves him greatly. When we pass a person in need because we just don't have time to engage them. When we don't help in a situation because when we look at the situation, it just looks really messy. When we clutch tightly our wallet. When the Spirit prompts us to be generous. In all these instances, we are guilty. We embezzle the love and the grace of God. Only one person has lived the life of faith that we're talking about today perfectly. Only one has perfectly stewarded the love of God the Father, and that, of course, is Jesus. He never, ever missed an opportunity. He never made an excuse. And let's not pretend here that it was all easy for him. God the Father entrusted with him a love that's beyond even our comprehension. It was an immense love. The love for his broken and lost creation, mankind. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world, that love was placed on Jesus' shoulders. And yet Jesus faithfully stewarded that love. He didn't keep God's love to himself. Instead, he gave. Even though it meant pain, it meant separation, it meant death on the cross. In love, he gave it all. Why did he do that? Well, in a word, reconciliation. To reconcile us, to make us right with God, so that our sins and our shortcomings don't need to separate us from God anymore. Jesus died for all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, even the times when we embezzle the love that he's already given us. The amazing act of love of Jesus accomplishes two things, among other things. One is that it, yes, forgives us of our flaws, of our shortcomings, but it also fuels us to love as we have been loved. It enables us to have faith that isn't dead, to have a faith that isn't dead as described here in this text in James, but is shown to actually be alive by works. It is the fuel for that type of living. I love that this passage that we've been studying today makes clear that this new type of living is possible for anyone. It uses two very flawed people as examples of people of faith. I don't know if you caught that, but when it talks about Abraham, Abraham was a very woeful husband. He was faithless in how he treated his wife at times. Rahab had a horrible career and reputation. She was the other person mentioned. She was a harlot, a prostitute. But both are given as examples of faith because they were changed by a God who specializes in renovating people. As they experienced his love and grace, they were changed and they were moved 
to not just be people who had and received the love of God, but people who would share of that love. They were moved to action. So have you experienced God's love and grace? And if so, how is he calling you to steward that love? How is he calling you to action?